Steve Wallen's bringing our message today. Would you give him a big hand as he comes to the Thank stage? You. Hey, Paul, before you go, I, I got this game that we've been playing in my house. Have you played this? Would you rather? Have you guys anybody played Would You Rather? Great game. So this is a, this is a great game. And so um, basically what the way it works is it has a bunch of questions, and the questions have approximately equally good or bad options, and you have to pick which one you'd rather do. I'm going to play with you guys in a minute, but I'm going to ask Paul a question first. Okay, I'm ready. So would you rather, Paul, have to spend a month with no explanation wearing a cape everywhere you go or wearing an eye patch and carrying a walking stick? It's basically Superman or Mr. Peanut. Uh, uh, so. I'll go cape. Cape. Yeah, All right. yeah well, superheroes. Just, I'll I go mean, cape on you. You do that in the office anyway. That's so right. That's, that's right. That's I'll that's go cape. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Hey, don't mess it up, all right? Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll do my... Oh, man, the pressure's on. Hey, um, so I thought I'd play this with you guys and just uh, ask you a couple questions. And so you're going to need a partner. So what you might do, if you came with somebody, uh, that might be a good option. If you didn't, uh, it's your chance to meet somebody new. So uh, here you go. So would you rather, okay... Go back in time and give your younger self advice that will change your life. Or go, go into the future and find out what you will encounter in years to come. Okay? Would you rather? Tell your neighbor. So let me just ask, how many of you are going back in time? You going back in time? Yeah, okay. How many of you are going into the future? Yeah, see the flying cars. That's what you want in it. Okay. So, so let me ask you this one. This one's a little, this one's maybe a little more negative. Would you rather be married to someone who insists every electric device in your house be controlled by the clapper or every piece of furniture has a plastic cover? Okay. Which one would you rather? Okay, how many of you are going to clap on, clap off? Any clappers? Okay, good. How many of you are going for plastic for plastic covers on the furniture? Okay, how many of you have plastic covers on your furniture? Never mind, don't answer that. So um, we've been playing this game at my house, uh, at the dinner table, actually, because I have two girls. They're 10 and 8, and uh, after a while, they get tired of telling me that nothing happened at school. You know, that we, we try to eat dinner together as often as we can, and we like to make conversation and, and get to know each other and really explore each other, you know. And so um, after a while, you can only take so many days of, well, nothing happened at school today. And so we want to make conversation. So we've been asking these questions, and, and we've got this game, I think, at a garage sale. And... Uh, and it goes well for a long time. Uh, but then it always comes to a screeching halt. And it comes to a screeching halt because there comes a question like this one. Would you rather... You don't have to play this with your neighbor, okay? Would you rather have a little man that lives in your mouth and incessantly hammers on your teeth with a pick or coexist with a small bird that lives on your nose and yanks out your nose hairs at its discretion? Okay, so what happens is... You, you get one of these questions where inevitably somebody goes, oh, no, I don't want either one of those things, right? Or, or you get one that's so good that somebody goes, oh, I don't want to choose. I want both. And that's when the game ends. Because if you don't make that choice, it's no fun anymore, right? I mean, you can't, you can't have the game without a choice. Uh, and, and not to choose one or the other is cheating. Well, we've been in this series that we're calling Not a Fan. And, and this whole series is intended to be a would-you-rather moment for us. You know, we've been asking, uh, would you rather be a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus? You know, there's, there's a decision to be made. And, and don't get me wrong, I think in every believer's life, uh, there's a point where we're all fans. 
Now, I think most people are fans before we're followers, and that's great. And if you're here today and you're just investigating a relationship with God, uh, if you're just checking us out, um, you know, there's definitely a place for you here. But in all of our walks with God, there comes a moment where you have a question to be answered. You know, would you rather be a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus? You know, our theme verse for this series has been this one on the side screens, Luke 9, 23. It says this, If anyone wishes to come after me or to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so the part that I want to spend a little bit of time on this morning is right there in the middle of that verse. It says, deny himself and take up his cross. And and so knowing that I was preparing for this message, I posted this week on on, uh, Twitter and on Facebook uh, to my followers and and friends, "Hey, hey, what does it mean to you to deny yourself? What's the hardest part? about denying yourself. And I got some really interesting answers, and I just want to share a couple of them with you. You know, one person said the hardest part about denying themselves is giving up control. You know, I like to be in control of things, and giving up control is hard. Another person said, admitting that I don't always know what's best for me the way that God does. And I can see how that'd be hard. One person said the hardest part of of denying themselves is remembering to do it, that it doesn't come very natural to us. Uh, and my favorite one was uh, from one of my Facebook friends that, that I just love the honesty in this answer. So what's the hardest part of denying yourself? He says, I'm a selfish, self-centered brat. And, and you know, I get that. I relate to that sometimes. Well, whenever I'm digging into a passage like this uh, and, and I want to get some more insight on what the words mean, I, I have a, a go-to version of the Bible, and it's called the Amplified Bible. And uh, it, it does a good job, I think, of breaking down some of these words. And Luke 9.23, this first part that says, deny himself... Uh, it, it says this, deny himself, and you can see there in brackets, disown himself, forget, lose sight of himself and his own interests, refuse and give up himself. Now, now, when you read it like this, it becomes very clear. You can't serve your own interests and still follow Jesus. You know, it kind of becomes a would you rather moment. You know, would you rather serve yourself or follow Jesus? You, you can't do both. You can't. But sometimes... We think we can, and we think we can serve, we can do both, and we do that by making this cross that we take up, we, we make it easy, we make it comfortable. You know, we, we try to make it as easy as possible to take up this cross. I mean, let's face it, we live in a comfortable society, don't we? Uh, we are the only society in the history of all mankind that has both the snuggy, you know, and the forever lazy, all right? Those look like party people, don't they? Would you tailgate with those folks and they're forever lazy out on the back of the truck? I, I mean, do we really, is there really that big of a market for two different products that are designed so that you don't have to get your arms cold when you reach for the remote control? I mean, are we really in that kind of society? D- does anybody, just as an aside, does anybody think this is the exact moment in time where we start to turn into the people from the movie Wally? I mean, is this it? We've got the Snuggie and the Forever Lazy, and before you know it, we've got our own little TV screens and we never have to get up from our chairs. Is that the deal? You know, in fact, it seems to me that every generation gets a little, just, just a little bit more comfortable than the last. You know how your parents had to walk to school every day, you know, in the snow, uphill, you know, both ways, right? Yeah. And it didn't matter that they lived in Florida. They still managed to have snow somehow, and hills for that matter. Uh, but, but we always want something better for our kids, don't we? I mean, I, just recently, my wife and I were looking to buy a house, and we knew that each of our girls had to have their own bedroom, right? And so we were only going to look at three bedrooms and more for our houses. And I don't know why we thought that. 
but we wanted each of them to have their own bedrooms and beds. You know, uh, both of my sisters uh, shared a room for quite a while while they were growing up, and that was not at all unusual. Uh, my wife actually shared a room for a while with two sisters and an aunt and a cousin. And, uh, and so that was a little bit uh, cozy. And for a while, my wife, when she was a kid, actually slept under a pool table. Uh, true story, her, my father-in-law, her dad, decided he wanted a pool table. And so they went to put it in the house, and they realized that in the living room, they would have to move too much furniture around to make it fit. But they could put it in the girl's bedroom if they just moved one of the beds out. And so they moves into the girl's bedroom. Pool table's there. My wife is the youngest. She gets the short end of the stick. She unrolls her sleeping bag and sleeps under the pool table. That was where she slept for a good part of her childhood. So then you go back another generation to my mom. And my mom was the oldest of nine girls. Nine girls. (laughs) And they grew up in a three-bedroom house with one bathroom. Could you imagine the line out the door to get ready for school with that one bathroom, you know? Uh, and, and I can imagine if you went back in time and talked to your relatives, you would find people that slept in barns or people that slept on mattresses stuffed with marbles or beds of nails or something horrific like that. I'm sure if you went back far enough. But we want better for our kids, don't we? You know, I want each of my girls to make sure they had their own room with their own bed. We want our kids to be comfortable. And it's one thing to be comfortable in your homes. But when we try to make the cross comfortable, it's a problem. You know, even this phrase, this is my cross to bear, we've, we've uh, contorted that, haven't we? I mean, it comes from this very part of Scripture, uh, Luke 9.23, you know, take up your cross daily and follow me. But we've taken that phrase and we've, we've changed it, we've modified it to fit our 21st century comfortable culture. And so we say things like this, you know, uh, I'll never lose that last 10 pounds. I guess that's just my cross to bear. You know, or, or my adult son never calls me anymore. I guess that's my cross to bear. Or, or I will never, ever be done with this laundry. I guess that's just my cross to bear. You know, and we do bear it, don't we? I mean, we, we wear it like a badge of honor. We, we make sure that people know that it's such a burden for us. And we think that this cross that Jesus has called us to take up resides in these everyday menial tasks or trivial inconveniences. And so the cross becomes something that we we wear on our T-shirts or we hang in our kitchens or we put around our necks. But it never really, we never really grasp the meaning of it. You know, it never really forces us to choose. And we end up with a comfortable cross. Jesus died on his cross. You know, he carried it through the city for everyone to see. Jesus was mocked and spat upon on his cross. and, And yet... We try to make our cross as comfortable as we can. But what else can we do as Christians? I mean, what else do we do? The idea of a cross, the cross is a tough sell, isn't it? And it's bad enough that Jesus had to die on his cross. But then did he have to go and suggest that we each need to take up our own cross to follow him? I mean, isn't that just really bad PR for Christians? Uh, Just look look how the Amplified Bible takes the last part of Luke 9.23. It says this. It says... Take up his cross daily and follow me means cleave steadfastly to me. Conform wholly to my example in living and if need be, in dying also. How can you ever market Jesus to non-believers if there's a chance they could die? Shouldn't we just try our very best to make the message of Jesus as easy and appealing as possible? I mean, do we want people to come to church or not? But we can't. 
know, we can't water down the message. We make a huge sacrifice when we rush past the cross. We risk overlooking the power that's in what Jesus did for us. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend a little time in 1 Corinthians 1 this morning. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those, of us who are, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you know, for people living in the first century, the cross was the ultimate symbol of weakness. Anybody hanging on a cross had obviously broken some rule. They, they violated some law. They were getting what they deserve. You know, and, and for many people, and some even today, the message that God came to earth as a human being and was crucified is complete foolishness. I mean, the cross is an instrument of torture. You know, why on earth would God take an instrument of torture, a symbol of weakness, and choose to use it to save the world? Because he could. And because only he could. You know, if a, if a first century Jew were to walk into this room today and he saw a cross, you know, hanging around our neck or, or tattooed on our arm, he would think we're sick. I mean, it would be like wearing earrings that had little electric chairs dangling from your ears. You know, it's an instrument of torture. It's a symbol of death. And that's God's point. And that's what makes the cross so beautiful. This, this thing that from a human perspective is foolish, it has no honor. It has no glory. You know, and, and God looks at this symbol and he's looking for something that says love and it says life. And he looks at this symbol of torture and he goes, yeah, I'll use that. God takes this foolish thing and uses it for his glory. You know, if you're in 1 Corinthians 1, look down to verse 27. It says, But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He did what no one else could. He took a symbol of weakness and turned it into a symbol of strength. He took a symbol of defeat and made it a sign of victory. He took a symbol of death and made it into a symbol of life. In fact, God didn't use the cross because of its weakness or in spite of his weakness. He used it because of its weakness. And here's the great news in this for you this morning. And if you're taking notes, this is something you might want to take notes of. You might want to write this down. You know, don't miss this. What God did with the cross, he can do with you. You know, God can take the weakness that's in you and turn it into strength for his glory. But here's the thing. You've got a choice to make. Would you rather? Would you rather serve your interests or serve God's interests? Would you rather go your way or deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him? You know, I think for a lot of us, there's a key event in history that we, we kind of overlook conveniently sometimes. And the date is 1543. Any history buffs in the room, you know what happened in 1543? Uh, that's the date, the year that Nicholas Copernicus published his landmark work, that showed that the earth, as was previously thought, was not the center of the universe, that, that the stars and the sun didn't revolve around the earth, but rather Copernicus suggested and was later proved that, that the sun was the center of the solar system and the earth revolved around that and that it was part of this bigger universe. And despite what you may have heard, the church was not actually in opposition to this work. In fact, Pope Clement VII, who was the pope at the time, was very interested in it and even uh, had Copernicus uh, come to the... Uh, come to his quarters to, to celebrate that, you know. But even today, nearly 500 years later, many of us are still living in 1542. You know, we're, we're still fighting this idea that we're not the center of the universe. 
You know, I often like to believe that the whole universe revolves around me. And it's true that many of us can't believe this idea that it's not all about us. But this is good news for you. This is good news for me that it's not all about us. You know, if you can latch onto this idea of denying yourself and put God at the center of the universe instead of yourself, life becomes so much better. And here's why. When you're at the center of the universe, if something happens to you, the entire universe is affected. You know, when it's all about you, that guy that cut you off in traffic this morning ruins your entire day. Uh, He's obviously out to get you. You know, doesn't he know that you're the center of the universe? You know, when, when, when you're the center of the universe, if you have a bad day at work, your spouse and your entire family are affected because anything that might have happened in their day couldn't possibly compare to what happened in your day. You know, if you're at the center of the universe and some major catastrophe happens, a breakup, a divorce, bankruptcy, job loss, the entire universe is knocked off kilter. But if God's at the center of the universe, here's the good news. God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Hebrews 13.8 says that. And the evidence is all throughout Scripture. I just want to run by a few examples real quick. Daniel 6.26 calls him the living God, enduring forever. Psalm 121 says he never tires or never sleeps. Isaiah 40 says his word shall stand forever. Psalm 102 says he's always the same. James 1.17 says that with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, God is steadfast. He never changes. So if we put him at the center of our universe and we stay on the periphery, then when something happens to us, the only thing that changes is our perspective. But we have a choice to make. Would you rather serve your interests or God's interests? We can't do both. Isaiah 55, 8 says it this way, you know, for, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And, and in a few minutes we have left, I thought I'd take a, just some time and cover a few areas of our lives where our ways and God's ways can't coexist. And these are some places in my life where I found I'm much better off allowing God to be at the center of the universe instead of me. And the first one is this, and they're in your notes. You can't have your strength and God's strength. You know, we're so bad as a society at admitting where we're weak, aren't we? I mean, what's the most feared question in any job interview? What's your greatest weakness, right? Uh, We don't want to fess up to any area where we might not be strong. But a few minutes ago, we read where God uses the weak things to shame the strong. And we see throughout Scripture where God continually uses people who are weak to further his kingdom and to further his purpose. And think about it. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a mama's boy. Joseph was in prison. Moses stuttered. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Uh, Jonah was defiant. Jeremiah was depressed. John the Baptist was uh, eccentric, maybe. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector who hung out with drunkards. Peter was impulsive and hot-headed. Thomas doubted. Paul helped kill Christ followers. But what God did with you, or with the cross, he can do with you. You know, what God did with the cross, he can do with you. He can take any one of us with our weaknesses and turn us into a symbol of strength for his glory. In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul writes this. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What about you? Are you willing to trade your strength for God's strength? It's much better. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 125, Paul writes, the weakness of God is better than human strength. The weakness of God is better than human strength. But it requires you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. You know, you may be in a place right now where you've been trying so hard to solve your problems on your own. Your financial situation is reaching desperation and you don't know how to solve it. Deny yourself. Your, maybe your marriage or your relationship has been in trouble for some time and you've tried to fix it, but nothing's working. Deny yourself. You're not strong enough to fix it. Or maybe it's some sin pattern you've been stuck in and, and you've tried so hard to quit. Deny yourself. You know, rely on God's strength instead. Will you trust him enough to let his strength fill your weakness? You know, the second place where our ways and God's ways can't coexist is this. You can't have your plan and God's plan. You know, if I could control everything and everyone, I know exactly how my life should go, don't you? I, I mean, I have, I have plans. I have dreams. I have goals. I even write them down like all the self-help gurus say you're supposed to. I know how everything should go, and I do my best to read Scripture and pray and listen for God's will for my life. But get this. God's will for your life and God's plan for your life are not the same thing. You know, sometimes once I think I understand God's will for my life, I put my own plan in place to make that happen. I try to shortcut the process with my own plan to get there, and it's dangerous. Now, there's a great example of this from Scripture. If you look at the story of Abraham and Sarah from the Old Testament, you know, God promised Abraham or Abram at the, son, at the time that he would have a son, uh, Genesis 15:4. In fact, God promised Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham knew God's will for his life. God told him. But his wife Sarah was barren. So they decided to do the best they could to carry out God's will on their own. But watch what happens. And this is in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 is where it starts. Now Sarai, uh, who later became Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave... Perhaps I, listen to that, perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. God said, I will give you a family. And Sarah says, perhaps I can build a family through her. In an effort to bring about God's will for their life, Abraham and Sarah unintentionally ruined God's plan for their life. In fact, God later says about the son that's a result of this relationship, the son Ishmael, God later says, this son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you think you would do just about anything to get it? Have you ever had a goal that you would stop at almost nothing to see come true? 
That's how it was with Abraham and Sarah. They wanted a son so bad, they were willing to do anything to have him, including sin. Unfortunately, that was not part of God's plan. Even if it was in his will, it was not in his plan. And what could have been a blessing ended up being a huge curse. Where is this true in your life? Is there something you want so bad you're willing to defy God to get it? Is there something you've been praying for, something you even feel like God has told you that you will have someday that that you're so excited about, you're willing to subvert his plan to make it happen? Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, if God's promised you a new job, he'll make it happen. You don't have to lie on your resume. If God's promised you a great marriage, you don't have to leave and start over again. He'll make it happen. You know, if God has promised you financial success, it'll come. You don't have to cheat. Proverbs 16.9 says this, says, uh, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And and when we seek God's will for our lives and then make our own plans to get there, we actually do the opposite. We allow God to plan our course, but then we determine our steps. Deny yourself. You can't have your plan and God's plan. And number three is this, and I think it's especially relevant today uh, for us at Genesis Church on this Commitment Sunday. You can't have your church and God's church. We can't. We can't have our church and God's church. You know, as we get ready to launch our second campus, we've had many people who've said, count me in. You know, some of us look back to the days when Genesis was just getting started and we think about the camaraderie that came with uh, doing something new and, and we just get excited. And still other people, as Paul mentioned earlier, have said, hey, uh, I'll, I'll go wherever. You know, I'm in, but, but just tell me where you need me. And we're so encouraged by and thankful for that. But we also know that it's change. And sometimes change is hard. And, and, and there are some people here at Genesis, great people, that are still unsure about this multi-site idea. And I get that. I do. I mean, if I had my way, I'd have church with about 100 or so of my closest friends. And we do it at the time I wanted, in the place I wanted, and play the songs I wanted, and talk about the topics I wanted. But guess what? It's not about me. You know, I'm not the center of the universe. God is. And he calls us as a church, Matthew 28, 19, to go and make disciples. You know, our job is, is helping people find their way back to God. And we're doing that. You know, for one reason or another, God has blessed this church. And new people are coming every week. And we're growing. And I don't know everybody here anymore, and neither do you. And it's hard. But we're doing what God has called us to do as a church. And we're gonna, if we're going to continue helping people find their way back to God, we have to do something. And for the last four weeks, Paul's talked about the options we have and, and what we've explored. And, and so I don't want to rehash that. But I thought I'd give you an analogy this morning. Now, hopefully, hopefully this will be helpful to you. I have a friend uh, in a nearby town that owns a restaurant. This is a true story. This is not a made-up story. I have a friend that owns a restaurant. And, and during lunch, this place is packed. You know, there's often a line outside the door, especially in the summer. And sometimes it gets so crowded that people show up and they have to turn around and leave because they're not willing to wait. And there's no place for them there. Uh, and, and so uh, he doesn't want to see people leave. It's clear that people want what he's serving. So he's only got a few choices. First, he can try to extend the lunch hour. You know, he can tell people to come have lunch at 1030 or at 2 o'clock. Um, and a few people might do that. But the truth is most people eat lunch between 11 and 1. And so that's kind of the limits. The second thing is he can build a bigger restaurant. 
but the atmosphere and the intimacy is really part of why people come. And so, one, it's, it'd be really expensive for him. But two, you would kind of wreck what he's got going on there. And so he's left with one other choice. He can build more restaurants. You know, you can put them in strategic locations that are close enough to the current location to where some people will go to a new location just because it's more convenient. But at the same time, the new location opens up his, his style and what he serves to a whole new population of people that are probably going to discover what he's got and are going to love it and are going to rush to it. You know, and that's what he's chosen to do. In effect, he's becoming a multi-site restaurant. He's decided he's going to be one restaurant with two locations. That's what he's doing. And he's going to work really hard to make sure that people in the new restaurant have the same experience that they had in the original place. You know, there's going to be a different cook, sure, but the recipes will be the same. You know, the building will look different, but the decor will be similar. You know, the, the look and feel will be the same, but, but everything that people love about the first restaurant is going to be in the second restaurant. The key for him is to make sure that everyone who comes to the new place has the same experience as the original. And that's what we're doing with Genesis Church. You know, the Cromwell campus will have everything you love about Genesis Church, but in a new location. And this new location will allow us to extend our God-given mission of helping people find their way back to God. You know, the truth is for me, and the truth is for you, that our friends and neighbors are dying every day. And many of them don't know Jesus Christ. And how cool will it be to have another option to invite them in? You know, so as much as I'd love for our church to say how it's always been, it's got to change to keep up with God's plan. You know, I have to deny myself in order to follow Jesus. And the last thing is this, and it's the gospel message, and hopefully it's good news for you this morning. If you hear nothing else than this, you can't have your sin and God's grace. You know, I'm so thankful for this this morning. You know, if you think about it, the reason the cross was so painful for Jesus was because he had our sin and took it to the cross. You know, everything that we have ever done wrong or will ever do wrong that's against God's plan is sin. And, and when Jesus was crucified, he took all of that with him to the cross. Every, every bruise on his body, every drop of blood, every scrape, every cut, all of it represents something that we did, that you and I did. And Jesus took that with him to the cross. And so if you're here today, you need to know that if you've made that decision to follow Jesus, your sin has been forgiven, that, that it's been paid for, that it is finished, that, that you are not beyond repair. You are not so far gone that you can't benefit from God's grace. You are not so broken that God doesn't love you. God loves you for who you are. He sent his son who died to take on your sin. And here's the good news. You don't have to run away from it anymore. It could be something that you're living with right now. Or it could be something in your distant past. But if it's haunting you, you don't have to run anymore. You know, if you've accepted Jesus as your savior, as your payment for sin, you don't owe anything. It's paid for. It's finished. So if you're still carrying it around, it's time to let it go. Romans 8 says it this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Isn't that great news this morning? Yeah. The Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and living in you if you'll let it be.
And if nothing else you've heard this morning convinces you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus, this should. He took up his cross to set you free from sin. Now it's your turn. What would you rather do?